0: To me, the goal of education is to help students with their journey. It's a long journey of getting the best out of them.
1: Intelligence is not fixed. Human potential is effectively unlimited, and it's up to our education systems and to all of us to see this potential and support that potential.
2: Welcome to Wise On Air, the podcast where we talk to the world's leading minds on the future of education. My name is Bassem, the producer of the show. In our last episode, we discussed the potential of edtech testbeds. And today, we dive headfirst into the technology that's taken the education world by storm, AI. You've undoubtedly heard of ChatGPT, the AI tool that's captured the attention of everyone from students and teachers to policymakers and governments. But the reality is that the pace of this technology's evolution is already light years ahead of our ability to even respond to it. Recent updates to ChatGPT has enabled it to edit videos, write research papers, create a web page from a rough sketch drawn on a napkin, and even serve as your very own virtual assistant for virtually just about anything. The speed of its advancement is so fast that it's even made OpenAI's founder Sam Altman a little bit apprehensive about the ways it will change the world. Now, given the many implications of this powerful tool, we would be naive to think that we could tackle this multifaceted issue in just one episode. So this time, we'll focus on the essentials. What do we know about AI so far, and how should education respond? Recently, Wise director Elias Falfoul took a trip to Stanford University. He was surprised to find that during a breakfast meeting, countless key stakeholders working in the heart of innovation were all caught off guard by this new technology. There were no exceptions. To gain more insights on this matter, Elias sat down with Isabel Howe and Paul Kim of Stanford to discuss the potential benefits and drawbacks of edtech, AI, and the role of technology in promoting innovation in education. Isabel Howe, Executive Director of the Stanford Accelerator for Learning, brings extensive experience in edtech to this conversation. And as a longtime tech enthusiast, Paul, Associate Dean and CTO of Stanford, has dedicated much of his research to using tech to improve education and provides a unique perspective on the challenges and opportunities of integrating technology in education settings. So without further ado, let's join Elias, Isabel and Paul to jumpstart this conversation and learn more about this new frontier of artificial intelligence. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to subscribe to Wise On Air for more conversations on AI and the future of education.
3: Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for welcoming me to Stanford today. Thank you for coming, Elias. It's a great pleasure.
1: A pleasure to have uh, you with us, Jan, and to host you here. It is absolutely
3: fantastic to be in this campus. We've been witnessing the energy We've been witnessing the vibe of the students. I want to come back to your life back at time of the age of students. Were you thinking that you would be involved in education? I can start with Isabel.
1: So I knew that education had been a huge driver for me all throughout my life from quite humble beginnings in rural South France. So I knew that, you know, education was very important. A lot of my family members are educators. So education had played a very big role. Now I was not thinking about education being my career or becoming my career. It took uh, a number of different steps in my professional career to have education being the sole focus of what I do today.
3: We are both three immigrants. I am myself Tunisian-Canadian, born in Tunisia. My family moved when I was 12. Isabel, yourself in French. French-American or American-French, I, I, before the end of the podcast, you tell us. Exactly. Which, which order. And Paul, you have a fantastic story as well. Tell us about that story. Sure. And you want the long one or the short one? I, I, I want the middle one. Middle one. Okay, you got it. So I'm Korean-American.
0: So I came to the U.S. after finishing high school, and I was a total failure. In 12 years of schooling in Korea, I was a bottom 1% performer in Korea uh, for many reasons. So I really didn't uh, like to go to school. I, I was afraid to do any exams and that sort of things. But I just did not know where to go. And then my father always told me, you have to get out of the house when you graduate high school. Growing up, I heard that so many times from my father. And then when I uh, turned into uh, fifth grade in elementary school, I asked my father, can I just leave now? I'm fifth grade. (laughs) And my father said, no, you have to wait till you graduate high school. So I had to wait. And I had an opportunity to come to the U.S. alone as a student. And then I went through the ESL and all the struggles that all the foreign students uh, go through when they come to a whole new country learning English and so forth. So I finished the ESL, barely finished it, and I was able to enroll in the first, very first uh, college-level class. And I thought, you know, I, I love music. I should uh, take some courses in music. And that was the very first course that, that I ever took at the college level. It was a music appreciation 101. And then I thought it would be a great time just listening to music and talking talking about music and so forth. But it was a totally a disaster for me. I... I I realized that you listen to Beethoven or Mozart and write a five-page essay, right? (laughs) Oh my gosh, I can't even barely order a hamburger at a McDonald's. How could I write a five-page essay? So I really struggled, and I ended up putting down a few sentences for my professor, and the professor looked at it, and he said, what is this? You're supposed to write about your reflection, your emotions and feelings that you gained from listening to the music. And I told the professor, "I I confess to you, I have a lot of emotions. I have a lot of ideas. Just, I, I just cannot put down a five-page essay. And he said, what language do you speak? And I said, Korean. I said, well, then write it in Korean right? and come back to class. So I, well, in Korean, I can do that. So I wrote a five-page essay and uh, submitted my paper. And the professor said, bring your dictionary and explained to me word by word what you wrote here. And so I explained word by word, looking at my dictionary and explained. And the professor, after listening to my whole explanation, he said, well, it looks like you have a lot of great emotions and great ideas. You're very creative. And this is not an English class. I'm not going to judge your performance in this class with English, but with your emotions and creativity and ideas. Yeah. Therefore, you deserve A in this class. So that was my so that very was first, first A first in my life. <laughs> At college level, I was so proud. And that sort of paved my way from that point on. I loved being in, in the U.S. as a student and studying a very first class with A. It was a great start for me. And that's how I started. In terms of how did I turn into education, there's a whole you know, another story. I finished my bachelor's degree in computer science, and then I started to kind of give lessons on computers to elderly people and then uh, coaching people with the computer lessons and things like that. And I also, when I briefly visited Korea, they thought, that, hey, you have a degree from the U.S. You, can, you should be able to speak English you should be able to teach a little bit of uh, English. So I ended up uh, having an opportunity to teach middle school students English. Obviously, I studied in Georgia, so I had a Georgian accent, and nobody understood my English with a Georgian accent, right? But when I was at least coaching uh, the middle school students with a little bit of English, they, they were fascinated about learning English, and they loved it, they enjoyed it. And from that experience, I thought, wow, they really believe what I'm saying in the classroom when I talk about America and my experiences, and they really like to listen to my stories. So I started to think, wow, education is very interesting. I could give them some lessons, and this could change their lives. Oh my gosh, what a fascinating field. So I I thought, you know, what can I do as a computer science person, I, I want to explore more in education. And I was looking for degree programs that could value computer science. And I found this program called education technology. So I ended, up, I ended up enrolling in master's in education technology. And while I was studying for master's degree, I thought, hey, I got my bachelor's degree. I now got enrolled in master's. Maybe I could possibly
3: work on PhD as well. Let's see what happens. I, I, will, I will come back to the EdTech because we're talking about education technology now yes. over 20 years ago, Absolutely. Right? And things have changed significantly. A lot, a lot of things have changed. Uh, from from technology point of view. Right. Isabel, I mean, all these experiences we heard from Paul now, imagine we had a technology back then. How can we explain the scale of change in technology But from the experiences that Paul have shared with us to today's world how can we imagine Paul you know, learning English with better technology, he would have been a superhuman now if I had a ChatGPT <laughs> yeah, <in> exactly. <laughs> back then. <laughs> right. Yeah, things have changed exactly. significantly, uh, Isabel. What 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 are th- some of your observations on the specifically the pace that how ha- how it's changing so fast?
1: Yeah, it's and it's both the pace and the uh, that has allowed for massive spreading of access and near ubiquitous access now uh certainly in the US but in many places in the world that I have had the privilege to travel to, of access to now this amazing, you know, super intelligent device that we call a, a cell phone, and now this new wave of AI that we are all experiencing that is further accelerating the spreading of of, of those technologies and everything that is going to, to come from that. Just seeing kids learn these days using different tools that Paul or I, when we were growing up, didn't have access to. And this really ubiquitous access that the, uh, the cell phone technologies have allowed and mobile uh, mobile access have allowed to is uh, really fascinating. But we survived without.
3: Do we really need this, this change and, and this fast, mm-hmm. Paul? Yes. You, survive would, would, yes. you survived without it? Yes. Your life would have yes. been different and better if you had access to the same technology
0: if I had, 30 years ago.
3: If I had these kind of technologies
0: that we see 30 years ago, I would have been a superhuman. Yeah. <laughs> right. Maybe I could have run for presidency or something. <laughs> but obviously, the problems that we see in the real world are very different. The, the, the kinds of problems that we used to deal with 30 years ago versus now. If you look at some of the problems and some of the the jobs that require the skill sets, they are totally different. So as the society evolves and advances, we have to equip our students with a different kind of skill sets and so that they can solve the different kind of problems, obviously. And they need different set of tools. And therefore, our education must evolve as well. But as we know, the clock speed in the education ecosystem is very different from the world, the rest of the world. And so we struggle with that. Uh, but I think as an educator, we're trying to uh, speed up the clock speed a little bit and be able to reflect some of the changes and advances in education uh, ecosystem as well. So we're all trying very hard, but as we know, it's, it's
3: not as fast as we want it to be. Isabel, are we able to implement and keep a certain level of quality education with you know, the, the creation and the speed of change and all the technology that we see? Are we able to implement and keep the quality
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's a big question out there on, you know, is education technology improving learning outcomes or not? We don't have a base case of what if we didn't have education technology. So it's very, very difficult to have a perfect answer to that question. What we know is that there are some tools that are not materially impacting outcomes and some are meaningfully improving outcomes. The other thing that we know is that learning has actually, human learning, has materially improved over time, over the recent decades. Uh, We have seen actually an acceleration of human learning. Education outcomes have suffered while they they were improving and heading in the right direction in the U.S. and globally before the pandemic occurred. We also know that, unfortunately, the effects of COVID have been Negative, generally speaking, on education outcomes. But overall, the trend line has actually been positive. Something that we don't speak enough about, in my mind. I
3: mean, COVID have been negative indeed for the learning outcome. However, it has been positive to look at at tech as potentially a solution to mitigate the challenges that are coming. Paul, maybe since you've been involved in edtech before even ethic is, is, is a common concept, mm-hmm. share with us your observation on you know, the experimentation leading to better outcome and how this is affecting the learning experience. Right. So before pandemic... People didn't really pay attention
0: to online education, digital learning, the use of technology in classrooms. They thought that the online education is a sort of a secondary option and maybe inferior to, you know, the real education. Right. But uh, what has been proven through the pandemic is that online education is real and, and then the use of technology is serious. It does help students learn. And we use technology to assess students much better at a deeper level as well. So as you said, it's been a quite painful years. But in terms of the digital literacy that uh, has been increased at the student level at the faculty and teacher level, it's just phenomenal. And the attention that the digital technology is getting in the education ecosystem is obvious and substantial. And in that part, I like what I am seeing now, we used to say digital literacy, but now we, we think' it's digital competency. You got to have competencies to survive and thrive in the 21st century. And so th- this is one you know, the key competencies and we now have AI right, and VR, AR, MR, and all different kinds of technologies that make new kinds of learning possible. So it's not just replacing what's in there, but it's creating whole new learning experiences and opportunities. So the value of technology in in education
3: has grown much, much more substantially. More challenges or opportunities if if we just build on on Paul's
0: Opportunities and challenges are always uh, always
1: always yeah uh, always with any system, by the way, whether it's technology, or otherwise. Um, um, but certainly with technology, we are seeing a very huge potential and huge drawbacks um, and huge concerns right now, especially with AI. You know, technologies on you know the transparency, the ethics, uh, equity is always top of mind with anything tech related. Given that there is a question of access to technology, fairness, safety of younger children. I mean, all those are, are obviously very, very critical questions that we need to solve for and be super mindful of. But I would argue that those exist in, you know, with or uh, without technology, with any system, they are put on these potential and drawback. If we, if we focus
3: a little bit more on the two aspects of the benefits and the drawback, can you give us a laser focus on the benefits and maybe one on the drawback.
1: Great. So on AI specifically, one of the huge potential that I see is finally the ability to have personalized learning. So we have had this vision in education technology to progress toward personalized learning, but AI really allows for that. And I have to say, we did a, a convening with about 50 teachers on ChatGPT recently, and hearing the excitement from teachers yeah on the capabilities of ChatGPT and uh, on uh, specifically here in that context on differentiated learning was palatable and really infectious actually if I may say. So finally we have this technology that will allow for providing individualized supports and uh, in a responsible in in a very very very, uh, individualized way to learners which is very exciting. The drawback to this is there are several of them. One is this transparent of AI tools, how do we know that those individualized pathways are the correct ones? especially as AI is now building more and more synthetic data or using synthetic pathways, how do we know what we are going to teach our future kids and how can we trace back to what the algorithms have actually built and inferred so, for learning? learning yeah, platform. And transparency um, of those tools, I think, will be critical.
3: Mm. But Paul, I know you're very excited and you, you've been following this, debate about AI. And you obviously, since you're an early adopter of technology, you believe that this is an enhancement for multiple reasons, for the learning outcome, but also it's going to help the teacher, it's going to help the learners. We know that now potentially we're going to be able to achieve what we wanted to achieve with the personalized learning experiences. I think this is going to support us. Do you see the same level of enthusiasm in different markets? I'm just using the fact that you you also connected with your... Country, Do you see the same level of enthusiasm between two continents, and in this mm-hmm. case, Asia and America?
0: Yes, m- more vibrant here in the U.S., mm. but there more concerns in other countries as I have visited and interacted with other ministries of education. For example, Korea, I had a convening with the ministry folks there, and they are really concerned. You know, what should the future textbook should look like? Right, they're just rethinking what what is education, what is the role of schools now, what would AI do in classrooms? Because students can have access to ChatGPT and all kinds of AI tools to get information and to get knowledge and to get simulation experience and all kinds of things that they couldn't have before. So now they are all thinking, you know, you should, should how do we train teachers? to mm-hmm. be able to cope with this and what kind of textbooks do we need and how do we change the classroom settings and environments and how do we assess students so they are having a whole list of uh, concerns and uh, questions so they want to discuss more and so as you know Korea they want to always advance in technology as quickly as mm-hmm. possible and so they are already are uh, developing prototypes and they are demonstrating some of that and I, I found, found it quite interesting as well but overall Around the world, the people that I have interacted with in all different continents, most of them are positive. Most of them positive. They are very excited. They're coming up with the various types of prototypes in assessing students better and catering learning experiences better for students. So there are a lot of positive aspects. Obviously, I am biased. Maybe I'm not
3: seeing the negative ones uh, uh, clearly enough. <laughs> to 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 kind of go into a bit more depth about the bias element, what what I hear from you, Paul, is you're only focusing on the teacher. I haven't heard the learner. Indeed, we believe that it's gonna make teachers' life better and easier if it's if we ask the right question. We, we had this mm-hmm. conversation about knowing to ask the right question. But are we sure that Chad, GBT Isabel, could? provide the same experience to the learners in terms of helping them learn versus the teacher helping them teach.
1: So it's still very early days on that particular question. What, here is what we know right now. There was some really interesting research being done by some of our colleagues at MIT. On writing, big question is: Will writing be a skill that learners need to acquire in the future? I mean, that's a legitimate question with ChatGPT. And so, those researchers looked at, based on uh, you know, they put students in two groups: one without ChatGPT and the other one with ChatGPT. And different from what maybe some some concerns out there, what the researchers showed is that two things. One, the students who they were, that were using ChatGPT were writing more. And two, and maybe more importantly, that they were writing better. So in other terms, the tool allowed those students to be more creative writers and more prolific writers. If that study, and we'll probably see, frankly, some studies that say some would have... But, different conclusions from this very positive one. But if that conclusion were to be proven out in in other studies, this is a really fascinating conclusion showing that actually we are going to enhance and augment human intelligence in ways that we have not seen before. Well, I would love to
3: hear you on the same topic. So I think it would
0: be good to introduce a little bit about what I have done with the ChatGPT coming online and so forth. I've been in a sort of a proponent of uh, helping students come up with better questions. I have a project called the SMILE, Stanford Mobile Inquiry-Based Learning Environment. This program is designed to help students develop inquiry skills from a very young age. So I've been working on this for more than 10 years. And I've been implementing this in various parts of the world uh, to help students come up with a better question. I, I'd like to differentiate what is a level one versus a level five question. So level one question is basically a simple recall triggering questions. Level five is hypothetical creative questions that will get you some innovative ideas and creative thinking going. And recently I launched a new feature out of that it, you can always go to ask.smile.stanford.edu and ask a question and you can get your
3: question evaluated the website before the podcast by the way uh, okay
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> so, so you can go to this site and it simply it has a box and then you can ask questions and then it will evaluate your question and then it will kind of help you how to answer these questions as well and what takes Uh, To answer that question is how this evaluates this question. You know, what kind of cognitive process is needed to it. So I've been doing that uh, with the students. And students go in there and try to ask questions about a lot of different things. It, It could be about STEM topics or politics or music or arts and many, many different things. Or you could ask questions about coaching needs. Like, I'm struggling in this. What should I do? Or, you know, but the question itself has to be creative. Otherwise, if you put a simple recall type of questions, you, you get simple recall type of answers. But if you put in creative, hypothetical, imaginary sort of questions, then you get very interesting response and evaluation along the way. This is what has changed from what I have done in the past and today with OpenAI API calls. I used to have a 1,000 line of code to do this job. Now with API call, I can do this in three lines of code. It's just an amazing improvement in terms of how much time I'm saving in terms of development. At the same time, giving students rich feedback, kind of comments that we we haven't thought of. That is amazing. On top of that, when you ask a human teacher a question, the teacher may answer, and then, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question, and maybe here's the answer. Teachers would forget the question. Do you remember what your child asked three months ago on Friday afternoon, 2 p.m.? You probably don't remember. The systems never forget a single question. It remembers every single thing you have asked. And then it knows the context of where my question is coming from. And giving you coaching advice based on all the questions you have asked in in your interaction history, that's just not possible humanly. But it is possible with the systems. That's amazing benefits. Now, obviously, there are drawbacks too. I don't want our children growing up to be just believing and depending on 100% on these machines. Because there will be time where things will go wrong, and maybe you are in an environment where electricity goes out, everything dies. And can you survive? Can you still solve the problems? That's a big question. And so that's why we always need to have plan B and have students understand the possibilities and opportunities, but at the same time, limitations and other drawbacks. And that's what we need to educate our children.
3: I want to focus on the question part. Are we right now teaching our kids how to question things properly? Isabel, you've been doing some research from early childhood education.
1: Yeah, these are obviously a lot of efforts on uh, teaching young children and older children critical thinking skills, which is part of really connected to asking the right questions. Now, is there an effort on asking questions specifically? And what Paul has been doing is extraordinary in this regard. I think there needs to be a lot more. It's connected to critical thinking, which is a big effort in schools in doing so. But this particular skill in understanding whether it's by the way, Asking questions or understanding the information and having the ability to discern right or wrong or the source of any information on those AI will become more and more critical. To me, it's both the act of asking questions, but it's actually more broadly critical thinking skills will become uh, absolutely key in uh, in this future that uh, is already here.
3: We're going
0: to probably see new jobs. Absolutely. We see prompt engineer, inquiry engineer, people who are formulating various prompts, and they sell them, actually. So there are companies selling these prompts to save you a lot of time. And I think they will see a lot more engineers, and this just creates a whole new industry. So where the training of these engineers come from? Well, they this are still, the mo- mostly self-trained yeah, right years. now, but I'm sure there will be more formal uh, education programs because they always, when there's a need, you know, there's a supply. Yeah. And, wow. and, right, so I think that the whole industry will eliminate a lot of jobs, at the same time create a lot of jobs too. I think we need to reflect these changes in our schools.
1: Well, it's not clear. I think that to me, the prompting of those machines that we are seeing with ChatGPT right now where you are, as a user, asking and driving a question or a thought and asking the machine to respond may not be there in a few years. It's not clear whether you will need to prompt the machine or if the machine will actually be more interacting with you without questions. Is this going to affect the human interaction? Oh, in many ways. And, and, and the relationship we yeah, have.
0: In many ways. Right now, we're using AI as a sort of, a oh, we'd like to test things and yeah. try different yeah, things exactly. kind of level. Yeah. But later down the road, we'll heavily depend on it, mm-hmm. on many things that we do at work, in schools, elsewhere. That's where where the real worries will come. What if this disappears? What if things start to go wrong? What if it is biased? And then it's stereotyping and all kinds of ethical issues that may come along. Then what are you going to do? And what if... Students just trust uh, AI more than teachers, and what 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 are you gonna do about it right so many teacher trust YouTube more <laughs> more than teachers
1: today? So, <laughs> right so
0: yeah, yeah, so there there will be a lot of uh, uh, following questions and, and issues and you know so I think these are the points that we need to address in schools, and we we have to include these sort of education uh, components in the teacher training programs as well. We must reflect these changes. We must help uh, the education evolve to the next stage.
1: I would add to that a concern that I have on seeing the usage of certain education technology tools and specifically chat GPT, but more broadly of one-on-one relationship to a machine which obviously eliminates a lot of social interactions or is not conducive to a lot of social interactions at the moment. So ideally, we would use a lot of those tools in social contexts or to connect humans between themselves. That's where I think the technology has a lot of exciting potential. In a one-on-one relationship, I'm concerned about you know, increase loneliness, increase mental health issues that we are already seeing in a lot of our youth for a variety of societal reasons. Could we have more collaborative tools over time that leverage some of these amazing technologies? I'm hoping we go there. We just did a seed client competition at Stanford on generative AI, and we just actually are going to announce the results immediately. One of the teams is focused on collaborations, on creating greater collaborations through those tools. This is one of my most exciting, and one of the most exciting projects in my humble opinion. There were a lot of other ones that are also really interesting, but this one in particular, I would really love to see more of those.
3: I want to go to People who create technology, they want to create technology because they want to be the first to create technology. And and if you if you talk to any creator of any new technology, they will say, I don't care, I want to just create this because if I don't create it, someone else will create it. So that's from a creative and innovator part. Now, on the other end, you have the public policy. That's, in my view, has been like, it's like a Ferrari versus a Fiat. Weird. How important... Do you see and, and I think the room here is a bit biased because we're all three of us super keen, you know, to experiment more technology because we look at it from an enhancement point of view, but because also we're educated to know how to balance this. But most of the world do not create the right balance. And we need public policy. How do we create a better debate to make sure the public policy aspect is involved from the get-go?
1: Yeah, no. Right now, it's a, a huge concern. So, so at the moment, we have those private companies that are in this huge arms race that uh, you know to build those best AI tool integrated with uh, you know with search tools. And a lot of those have are actually partners of uh, of Stanford. Uh, whether it's Google or OpenAI, we have uh, like discussions with those big companies all the time. However, their incentives are very driven by as you said, technological advancements, shareholder value, and a number of other things. So we absolutely need checks and balances. Mm -hmm. There is a role for policy, but in my mind, there is also a role for academia, And research as a neutral party. And I think this is something that, you know, at least based on the feedback that we're seeing so far, Google and OpenAI are welcoming the involvement of an institution like Stanford, for example. We need effectively to build a collective intelligence to drive positive change. And so far, those big tech companies are actually quite receptive to our feedback.
0: And also we have a program called the EIR, Entrepreneur-in-Residence, which is to invite company leaders from the industry to come in and influence us. And so that we will create opportunities to collaborate more. So the entrepreneurs who come in here, and some of them are teaching courses here with entrepreneurship in mind and also working with the students and also advise faculty as well. This is one of examples of getting the industry and universities connected. So we're not doing research that has nothing to do with the real world. And then hopefully the companies are not just going out there producing products just to make profits. We want them to be able to share our passion of changing people's lives through innovation. And so I think, you know, we all know that it takes a whole village to raise a child. And that's what we're trying to mimic
3: Hope that these research would serve the the decision maker in, at the and the correct the that's, that's correct. right. Yeah. At least yeah. Yeah. yeah, when you mentioned about these entrepreneurs who are in a way geniuses, I've been having this conversation back in uh, Doha about where are the geniuses and my colleague said, actually, the geniuses right now, they m- might be involved in things not related to public good. All of the geniuses we have, they are, they're creating companies now, and they're very much more driven by profit. Do you see, Do you, this claim makes sense or not? It is about the smartest people right now, they're creating things you know, mainly linked to... Prof. Profit basic. making.
1: Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Paul. I, I yeah. disagree. I disagree. Yeah, have another. I want to have disagreement. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: So
0: we have another program. Great, other yeah. <laughs> we have a, call, a program called the Design Learning Challenge. Uh, this is to give students exposure to the real world problems, so that they think about entities, enterprises that can really change uh, positive, you know, making a positive difference in the world as well. So we promote entrepreneurship for change. We promote entrepreneurship for a cause. So these students who come up with the startup company ideas, they're not just coming up with ideas to make a profitable, you know, uh, business. They come here to solve a problem. And uh, one of the, the ways to solve a problem is to come up with an entrepreneurship mindset, and they come up with solutions that can scale. So for-profit is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just it's many ways, one of many ways... Uh, to scale up innovation. And so we like to uh, promote the entrepreneurship among our students. And at the same time, we want our students to be partnering with not just the Stanford community members, but uh, members beyond Stanford as well, working with the students from developing countries and then try to uh, come up with a solution that really is contextualized to solve the local problems. Uh, we, We love to promote these entrepreneurship and collaboration to solve a real-world problem.
1: Yeah, I could not agree more with Paul uh, and disagree with your framing, Elias. What we are seeing on campus and more broadly is the, it's not a, a recent, I would say over the past 10 years or so, a huge shift in our students' mindsets from being driven solely by profit motives to being driven by mission. And people use different words. Some say mission-driven, some call it purpose, some call it impact, but it's all around the same theme, making a positive impact in the world. Some will go and set up some for-profit ventures, some will go to create non-profit organizations, and then there is this entire space in between of organizations that have a little bit of mix between the two. Point being that this is a really interesting trend. Our geniuses are mission-oriented versus for-profit first.
3: And if it happens that it's the big profit out of it, w- why not? We, we all agree on that. I mean,
1: It's
3: not, it's not a point of disagreement.
1: For-profit worth... is a means, not an end.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. But the purpose is it's to make many young people now they have a level of consciences about challenges we live in and They want to involve themselves in creating solutions. Exactly. Creating solutions to make a positive difference. We're coming very close to the end of the podcast. I have three questions that my team have wrote, and I'm going to read them out. Uh, These are more philosophical. These are more about your personal journey. It's to inspire the audience. So I'll start with question number one. What is the most valuable piece of advice or lesson you have learned throughout your career in education? And how has it shaped your perspective or approach to your work? I'll start
0: with that. I'm glad that I'm in the field of education. I I, I feel great that I've made a great I decision. see the passion. Yes. yeah, I love to change people's lives. And so to me, the goal of education is to help students with their journey. It's a long journey of getting the best out of them. Everyone is a genius, in my opinion. Everyone is gifted. It's just that we need to help them find it. And I always tell students, you cannot fail if you don't give up. And you cannot succeed if you don't start your journey. However, at the same time, I see many students who are struggling or even depressed. And and, and sadly, in Korea, the suicide rate uh, among the students is pretty high. So many students don't want to learn or change. and, And this is our fault. This is our fault, okay? (laughs) We haven't explained to them why they need to learn and how their lives matter in this uh, world. So the bottom line is to help them get on their feet and enjoy their own learning journey. And providing and catering the journey for individual, different individuals with a unique background and talents that they're yep. born with. That is what we are focused on. So with this in mind, whether we use technology or not, what must come out at the end is student success. And I think everyone deserves to get that wonderful journey. It's just that it, it's our fault that if we have not provided them with by, support, by, with the yeah. support and resources.
3: Isabel?
1: What I've learned over time is actually very connected to Paul's learning, that intelligence is not fixed. Human potential is effectively unlimited, and it's up to our education systems and to all of us who are involved in education to see this potential and support that potential.
3: Isabel, if you could have any superpower related to education or to technology, what
1: would it be? To so spread uh, joy and relationships.
0: Well, have all those living in marginalized communities access the best quality education and learning experiences this world can offer for free? Yeah.
3: For free? For free. Yes. We have to reach that level. I mean, we we can. As three immigrants, I wouldn't be doing this podcast if Mm -hmm. my parents did not move to Canada when I was 12. You can still succeed wherever you are, but I still believe if you are in the right environment, you can blossom. Now, with technology, hopefully, that environment could be created through these new solutions of technology. Before letting you go, a book that you could share, something that inspired you recently, any, any book recommendation that could lead you know, the way to understand the future of
1: learning? So I love reading. So I have a few recommendations. Otherwise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I have three. One is on AI. It's called the Alignment problem by Brian Christian, great book on thinking about the intersection of human intelligence and um, in artificial intelligence. The one is very different. is a biography of uh, someone that I think is one of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time, Maria Montessori, and it's called The Child is a Teacher, A Life of Maria Montessori by Cristina De Stefano. Terrific book about the life of this amazing woman entrepreneur in the beginning of, of the 20th century. And then the last one is a short book by Ken Robinson, who has written a lot on creativity and the importance of creativity and joy in education. And it's called Imagine If.
0: Oh. Whenever I get that question uh, from young students, I always recommend the book called The Why Nations Fail. Yeah. I think you need to know why nations fail, so that you can make sure that they don't fail and build a just, equitable society. In terms of the books, I have published two books. It's just that they are not English yet, so I'm I'm looking for publishers to translate them. I published two books. One book is titled "Coaching, Not Teaching," and the other book title is "Relearn." And these books talk about the importance of uh, creating a lifelong journey with a cause. And the ReLearn book reflects me going back to be a student to become a pilot. It's got some exciting and heart-wrenching episodes. You know, I imagine getting the lessons to become a pilot. So I just need to publish these books uh, in in English. I'm looking for publishers. Hopefully, uh, I'll be able to share these messages of creating a long uh,
3: journey of learning and relearning for life. And learn, relearn. Yes. And call for action, folks who are listening to us. If you have any publisher in your network for French, Arabic, English, reach out to Paul Kim. (laughs) Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Wish we had more time, but we have to bring this conversation to an end today. Thank you very much, Isabel, for uh, your insight and generosity. Paul, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to meet you both and to be in this amazing compass. And congratulations for the great work
2: you both
0: do. Thank you, Elias. Thank you for having us.
1: Thank you, Elias and Paul. Always a pleasure.
2: And that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed this episode and gained valuable insights on the state of AI and what it poses for the future of education. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out a lot. And expect more episodes continuing this ever-evolving conversation on AI technologies and education. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us anytime on our social media platforms through the links in the description. And don't forget to subscribe to Wise On Air wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of our upcoming episode. We'll be back again following the conclusion of Wise and Jeff at Medellin, where we're partnering together with Jeff to host a conference on the topic of taking education beyond traditional contexts and involving the whole society in learning. That's happening on the end of May, so for more information, do check the links in the description. Until then, keep on learning, and thank you for listening to Wise on Air.